Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Elena. I'm Shiv, and today we are thrilled to have Fatima Gosgraves with us. Thank you for coming. Uh, Fatima, who has served in numerous roles at the National Women's Law Center for more than a decade, has spent her career fighting to advance opportunities for women and girls. She has a distinguished track record working across a broad set of issues central to women's lives, including income security, health and reproductive rights, education access, and workplace fairness. Fatima is among the co-founders of Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. She received her BA from UCLA in 1998 and her JD from Yale Law School in 2001. She currently serves as an advisor on the American Law Institute Project on Sexual and Gender-Based Misconduct on Campus and was on the EEOC Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace and is a Ford Foundation Public Voices Fellow. Thank you again for joining us. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us? So I have been at the National Women's Law Center for well over a decade, but I've been president for less than two years. And about two months, maybe four months into my presidency, Me Too went viral. So I was a very new leader in the work, but not new to the issue, right? This has been passion work for me for a very long time. But at the National Women's Law Center, we had to look really deeply and think about what our response was going to be. All of a sudden, an issue that was largely in the shadows, largely on the margins, was in the center of everyone's conversation. So we knew we had to readjust our priorities. We had to respond to the many policymakers who were asking, what should we do? We had to respond to the hundreds of people who started calling us seeking help. And most importantly, we had to be open to new ideas. And out of that openness is really how you end up with something like Time's Up Legal Defense Fund. Because a lot of people came together and were struggling with what do we do in this moment. So I was a very new leader and had to be willing to take on what has been one of the most extraordinary and exciting and fulfilling uh, projects of my career. I think many people would say you were very successful in that. Um, but I'd like to go back to talk about your education a little bit. Um, what drew you to law? And I know a lot of college students are kind of grappling with whether they want to go to law school or not. How do you know that was the right path for you? Well, what I'm going to say is probably not super helpful, but I think people should only go to law school if they think they want to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and that might sound circular. But every once in a while, I meet people who tell me they definitely don't want to be a lawyer, but they're eager to go to law school. And I sort of think, maybe think about some other things you might want to do, especially given how expensive it is. I'm the first lawyer in my family, and so that's a big deal for, for me and for my family. You should have seen my graduation 20 years ago almost with, um, I think, about 50 family members <laughs> traveled <laughs> to it. Uh, very excited for me. Um, but I grew up understanding the importance of law as a tool for social change. My father and his siblings were the plaintiffs in a lawsuit to desegregate the Knoxville public schools. That was called Goss versus Board of Education. And that was something my family was very proud about. You know, we, we sort of learned early on about the ability to use the law to make change, even though 
none of us were lawyers. And I think that stuck with me as perhaps a tool I could use to make change in the world. I think in the same vein, um, when, you know, when you were talking about an inflection point, you were saying that law has been almost like a passion project for you and you have kind of a connection to it. With that, can you speak a little bit more about why you decided to focus on the issues within law that you chose to pursue? Um, for instance, you have done work in income security, health and reproductive rights, educational access, and workplace fairness. So for many students, kind of all over the place in terms of you know our passion. So how did you narrow your passion and find your niche within that? So for me, you know, the focus of the National Women's Law Center is really improving the lives of women and girls, right? We, we know that that's our mission. And we uh, use the range of tools that we have at our disposal to do that. We also know that women don't divide their lives by issue. It's not as if um, you wake up and you think of, uh, just the fact that childcare is not affordable and inaccessible and uh, y- that you don't feel like you have a place to send your kids, which makes it harder to work. And if you can't take a sick day, that makes it hard to do. And if you don't have access to health care, including your reproductive health care, all of these things are bound up to individuals. And so we have always at the National Women's Law Center been a multi-issue organization because people don't lead single issue lies, so says uh, the Lord. And, and that's been important to us, right? And so... Um, when I think about what makes me passionate, it is the ability to make the sort of change that can transform women's lives. And really, in turn, I believe when you do that, you transform families and communities. With that said, um, and, and you are the president of the NWLC, how have you kind of work to build coali- coalitions with other organizations. It has that been an important aspect of your work? As you said, that since women are not single issue people, they have so many different issues and there are so many different organizations fighting um, for justice. How has that kind of that process looked like? So no one gets anything done by themselves. That is always been the case and it will always be the case the way that we build power is collectively it's collectively across race it's collectively across class across gender and and in truth when we can come together around a suite of issues that's when we win right and so that's how we've always done our work but I will tell you the last couple of years uh That has been made more and more clear that if you are not on the table Monday as a community that's under attack, watch out. It may come to you Wednesday or Thursday. And people know that deeply. As a result, they're showing up shoulder to shoulder in solidarity, even if people wouldn't normally think of that as an issue that is driving them. And and that is in part protection. That is in part understanding that our communities are made up of multiple types of people. Um, but it is a power building strategy and one that I hold very dearly. I think 
you know, going off of your role as president and CEO of NWLC, um, can you talk a little bit about transition and setting your priorities and goals for the center? So again, I've been president for now less than two years, although maybe these last two years have been dog years. So maybe I, maybe it's 14. I don't know. Uh, but I will tell you that I'm not new to the work, right? And I had the great luxury of building on a very serious and deep legacy of uh, our co-founders who led the organization for 45 years. And when something like that happens, I have the opportunity to build on an institution that was already strong, right? That's a great privilege to have. But I also had an opportunity to set a course with my staff about the direction that we think is most important for right now. And that's what we've been doing. We understand that uh, our work is done best when we put the people at the center of our work who are experiencing challenges most acutely. We center in our work women of color and LGBTQ individuals, and we know that, and we say that, and we repeat it, and rinse, and we know that, and we say that, and we repeat it, and rinse, and it shows up in how we do our work, who our coalition partners are, when we show up, when we don't. All of that is is critical. We also are deeply committed to work in the states right now, in part because uh, even as we're doing a lot of defensive work, there's a lot of promise around the ability with our working with our state partners closely to make change, and we're doing that and prioritizing that. And we have been very very clear that. Women are the most powerful force out there right now. It's just the case. You know, if, if you weren't sure about that before <laughs> in his scene, who is leading the marches, leading the phone calls, showing, leading the, even the attorney activism, there's something special happening right now among women. We believe it's important that in our work, that our work work across generations of women and that we reach younger women as well. And so that has been an on-purpose strategy that we're in constant communication with younger women as we talk across the many generations of women that are showing up in this moment. I think in a similar vein to that, um, in an interview with NPR, you talked about how culture is dramatically outpacing our laws. I believe um, that. <laughs> in respect to sexual harassment and workers' rights specifically. Now, you're widely respected for being very effective in the public policy arena. How best do we harness that cultural change into policy? If it's an, I mean, I'm sure it's not an easy answer. Well, it it's something that we can't figure out. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and I think we're seeing this a little bit, uh, the response this week in Congress, is that you have cultural work that's happening really fast, right? For the last year and a half, people have been deep in a conversation around harassment and violence that's really historic. And our policymakers have just been slow, right? We've had some states move forward. But what you would expect if our laws were outpacing our culture is for them to be at the leading edge and sort of dragging our culture along. That's not happening at all, right? One of the hardest institutions to change is going to be Congress. And so our culture has to push our policymakers our policymakers must see and understand that they are out of step with our culture, which is not where they are going to want to be, 
right? And there's lots of ways to do that. When you think about who our culture makers are, there's many of them. Some of them are entertainment influencers and athletes, and they get a lot of attention. But culture makers are in community as well, right? And so one of the things that it, uh, we are focused on and one of the things that it is sort of our job to do at the Law Center is help those two meet each other, help our champions who are policymakers and interested and eager to move laws and policies meet and connect with where our culture is as our culture is being made and vice versa, right? So that the people who are deep cultural influencers um, are aware of and connected to what may seem like boring, wonky policy. Um, in a similar note to that, do you think it, the moment's unique where a culture is outpacing our laws, or do you think that's how it generally is? It doesn't always happen this way, right? You've seen important moments where a legal decision helps push our culture along, mm -hmm. right? Or a Congress passing a law helps move us forward so that we then have a cultural expectation around equality. So we've seen it happen both ways. I just think right now we are in an interesting moment where there is rapid cultural development around gender justice. And I look at some of our policymakers and I think you guys either have to get with it <laughs> or you might not continue to be around. <laughs> and I think um, an example of where, you know, culture has informed, you know, organizations to act and to bring these issues to the forefront is the Times Up Legal Defense Fund is kind of a an example of that happening. Um, so can you speak a little bit about um, how exactly did your organization know, okay, now it's time for us to take steps to, you know, find partners um, to create the center and who are your key um clients um, within the center? So, uh, you know, when we launched the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, one of the things that was happening around not just this country, but around the world, is that groups of women had started to gather and talk about what they could be doing for change, right? And you were hearing that over and over. People may have been even gathering on this campus trying to figure out what were they going to do. They were captivated. They've been having this conversation online and were wanting to have a conversation in a lot of different ways. And one of the groups of people that were gathering were in the entertainment industry. And they were having gatherings unlike gatherings they had had before. It's not as if... Um, you know, actresses and producers and so both in front and behind the camera were regularly sitting down talking about social justice in the broad way that they were. And so one of the things they quickly realized that they needed were attorneys to take on and represent the many people who were bold enough to speak up in that moment. And we had begun building a legal network. And so the idea of bringing those two things together and really trying to create something that did not exist was exciting and daunting. I'll just stick with the exciting part. <laughs> and we've been really proud of what we've built. We've heard from over 4,000 people 
in just over a year. We've met, uh, we now have over 800 attorneys who are in our network. Uh, the people who uh, contact us come from all over. They work in over 60 different sectors, and they're coming from just about every state in this country. And that tells me that it is an everywhere problem, and it is an everyday problem, and we are only beginning to scratch the surface. Um. The last question we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success? And how would you help students define success for themselves? Hmm. Well, I think my personal definition of success is doing the best that I can to achieve my goals. I, we don't always win. Right. In many of the campaigns that I work on, they're generation long campaigns. Right. I don't expect to win in three months or six months, although sometimes we do. Right. But if I am showing up and bringing my whole self to this work every single time and giving it all I can, that's success for me. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have today. Thank you, Fatima, for joining us. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thanks for having me.